Hey, everybody, thank you so much for watching and listening to the special simulcast edition of Zoom Into Books and the Big Time Talker podcast sponsored by our friends at speakermatch.com. I'm live in our studios in Washington, D.C., and so happy to talk with author John Brown, who more than 50 years ago was drafted into the Army. He's written books about that time and also his time after the surface. The first book is Augie's War, and the follow-up novel is Augie's World. Augie uh, has an awful lot in common with our author, John H. Brown. You can visit him online at wordsbyjohnbrown.com. Let's rewind in your mind's eye back to a young John Brown. You were a kid who grew up in uh, small town West Virginia in a very tight-knit Italian-American family. Tell me what life was like as a kid, because that really informs both these books. Sure. My father was from a small mountain town in West Virginia, named like Brown. He obviously wasn't Italian, but he met my mother in uh, a town in north central West Virginia, Clarksburg. And after the war, after World War II, he stayed there because uh, in that town, there were four uh, glass plants and he went to work in a glass factory. He turned out to be also the president of his local union for, uh, for a number of years. So anyway, I grew up with my mother's family. There were, she had seven other siblings and um, I had 21st cousins and we all lived on one block in this little portion of Clarksburg called uh, Northview. Uh, my grandfather was a, was a, an immigrant from uh, Calabria, from a town called San Giovanni in Fiore, down, way down south in, uh, in Italy. And it was a mountain town. And he left there around 1885 or 84. I, 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 I'm not quite sure what that number is. But in any event, he came to America to work, find a better way of life. Uh, worked in the coal mines in north uh, central West Virginia for about 16 years and then saved his money and then opened up, built and opened a bakery called Health Bread Company. Well, as a, as a child growing up there with uh, all the Italian influences, I, I thought it was a full-blooded Italian because I, I had no idea that I really didn't have much uh, interaction with uh, my father's side of the family. And consequently, I worked at the bakery, this Italian bakery from the time I was in sixth grade um, after school and then in high school, on weekends, uh, working overnight. So uh, all of those things influenced me. Uh, the, the Italian love of food, the, the conversation, uh, uh, conviviality, uh, all of those things that you've probably read bits and pieces of either on, um, uh, on in other books or in the movies. So that's, that's kind of what got me started uh, thinking about this. And uh, when I went to uh, the West Virginia University and graduated, uh, unfortunately, it was at a time when I could I could not avoid military service. I was drafted, uh, decided not to go to officer's candidate school, so I was an enlisted man, went immediately to Vietnam, and uh, spent a year uh, back then uh, deployed as a uh, an awards and decorations writer and somebody who pulled guard duty a lot up in the northern bit, uh, northern south. Italian immigrants, uh, you know, really came over in full force through Ellis Island, late 1800s, up through the, the first half of, of the 20th century. And a lot of them settled in and around the Pittsburgh area, Clarksburg, Fairmont. And a lot of them went into, into the mining industry and other really tough blue-collar jobs. So you grew up as a blue-collar kid, and yet – you talked about working at that Italian bakery all the way through school. You did go away to college. How did you break away from that sort of backbreaking physical labor that, that uh, your forefathers went through? Well, I think it goes back to my parents, both of them. Uh, they, neither one went to college. My, my father did go to business school for a couple of years, but uh, there was a, a great emphasis in our family on education. And it turns out that I was the first person in, in our immediate family to have gone to college. Uh, I went to Fairmont State College for two years because my parents were afraid of sending me to the, the, the larger university till I proved that I would, uh, I would uh, you know, pass, pass and be able to carry on in, in an academic uh, sort of way. 
I say sort of way because I really wasn't a great undergraduate student, but I did, I did uh, transfer to West Virginia primarily because I wanted to go into journalism. I wanted, I wanted to write and, and I wanted to, uh, uh, later on I decided I probably wanted to cast my um, uh, future with, uh, in public relations. And, and so, but I, did, but I had to put that on the back burner because when I graduated, to set the stage, and this was in the spring of 1968, a lot of monumental uh, events around the world, particularly in our country, happened uh, between January and, and, uh, and July of 1968. I'll just name a couple of them. Uh, first off, in, in, in late January, early February, we had the Tet Offensive. Up until that point, uh, the, the Vietnam was, was more of a distraction. Uh, more of a police action. People didn't really take it serious. There were some anti-war demonstrations, but this was the first time that um, television was involved in, in, in documenting the war to such a point that the American public really, you know, got energized to make their voices heard about what they felt about it, and a lot of people didn't like it. So Tet Offensive, then in the, I think it was in March, uh, President Johnson, who was up for re-election, decided not to stand for re-election, uh, which shocked a whole bunch of people, because Johnson was the person who uh, got us into the war pretty much, or carried it on after Kennedy got us in. And then, then uh, in April, unfortunately, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And then about a month and a half after that, uh, Bobby Kennedy was killed. And so the, during that, that period, particularly after Dr. King um, was assassinated, uh, there was rioting in the cities, there were race, major racial problems, um, just kind of a little bit kind of like what's happened in the last couple of months here in, in our country for a whole different reason. But, but, you know, essentially the same kind of thing. People were just tired of, of, uh, of this problem. Uh, uh, the racism, particularly, that had gone on for, for a long time in our country. So there was all this racial strife, and that's, that's, the, um, that's the background under which I, I, I listed in the service all those things happened. So when I go into basic training in the fall of 1968, um, it, the, the, the world was crazy. Uh, our country was uh, still very, very uh, separated by uh, a lot of anti-war demonstrators on one side and a lot of uh, uh, folks who believe that, you know, you, your country is calling you, you got to go and don't ask questions. And so it was really a bad, it was really a, a very interesting time. And, uh, you know, I think about when I was in basic training because I was a college graduate, even though I was an enlisted man, my, my um, uh, staff or my sergeant, uh, drill sergeant made me kind of a leader. And so I, spent a lot of time breaking up fights between blacks and whites and and uh, it, it was it was a tough time and um and, and then you then, then i get sent to vietnam as a bonus so it was it was an interesting time for me and i'm not sure that that folks who are watching and listening today can wrap their heads around the fact that here you are a young guy less than 20 years old and you're drafted to go away to war because we've had selective service for decades now. And, and I wonder if you can go back in time and think about what that felt like to you to be drafted and in months to be plopped down in an active war zone. Can you remember what that felt like? Well, I can tell you that I've always been kind of, kind of an optimist and uh, I had to use all of my powers of optimism to think positively that I was going to make it. But I'll tell you, there were, you know, you don't know. I mean, it's, it's, I'm sure it's the same for anybody who's ever had to go into a war zone. No matter what you do, you're, you're in an area where there's, there, there's a real good chance you're going to be injured or possibly even killed. So I went there as an optimist thinking, you know what, I, I'm probably going to be in a rear area, which I was, fortunately. And I'm probably not going to have a, you know, I, I have a better chance than if I was out in the jungle uh, as an infantryman. And as it turns out, that was largely true, except that where I was, was in a place uh, called Chulai, which is uh, in what they call I Corps, the, uh, the, the northern quadrant of uh, South Vietnam. Uh, it was a little bit 
our, our base was the headquarters for the AmeriCal division. Um, and uh, it, it was the largest division in the, in the country. But I have to say that it was probably the least effective because of what happened. Uh, and I think this goes to a lot of the, the issues I brought up in, in Augie's war. Um, they kind of gathered people from other units and, and to, to, to make this uh, AmeriCal division, which is a very storied division in World War II, particularly in the Pacific. Well, they decided they needed a, a big army presence in northern South Vietnam. And so they, they, they asked all of the existing divisions there to give us your best and your brightest. Well, of course, what they did was give, they gave the American Division less than the best and the brightest as our commanders. And, and we just had a whole lot of people up there. And we were really getting, getting uh, I think, pretty well handled by the North Vietnamese, who were our prime, um, the people we, we fought against. The Viet Cong were there too, but but the North Vietnamese were, were uh, serious uh, soldiers. And where I stayed, uh, my base got bombarded uh, multiple times a week, usually at night. Uh, we'd get sniped at occasionally. So I ended up doing my job, which was to write awards during the day. And then a couple of times a week, sometimes I would be pulling guard duty down on the bunker line, which is the perimeter. So that's how I spent my year. So I was, very, I was fortunate to be in a rear area. Uh, on the one hand, but on the other hand, there was really no super safe place to be, particularly in northern South Vietnam. Then I just uh, imagining you growing up in Clarksburg, West Virginia, in this family, working in a bakery, being a high school kid, going away to college, and then suddenly, you know, bullets are whizzing by. Uh, but I do want to ask you about this job that they gave you in the military because it informed your work as a novelist. Now you, you know, have come back many decades later and you've become a novelist after retiring from your, your firm. Um, you said you wrote awards and, and yes. decorations. What does that mean exactly? Well, what would happen was, uh, it's kind of a funny story. And I, the, the prime character, Augie in the book, a lot of the, you know, a lot of what you write uh, anybody that writes, particularly the first novel, can't say with any degree of, of truthfulness that, that, that uh, it isn't at least partially autobiographical. So, you know, I was a writer. I, go, I, I was a journalism graduate. I go to Vietnam, and I'm about to be sent out on a, what they call a landing zone or a hill to fix guns, to fix weapons. If you talk to my wife, she'll tell you that cutting the grass is a mechanical experience for me. But yet they're going to send me, <laughs> send me out to a, to a landing zone in the middle of the boonies to fix weapons because that I spent two weeks learning how to do that out of a 12-week training program. That's how crazy, you know, the Army can be at times. So I'm about to be transferred, about to get on a helicopter, and I've, I've got my personnel file, and I'm being checked out. And the fellow who checked me out happened to be – from Beckley, West Virginia. And he said, oh, you're from West Virginia. And he looked at me and he said, oh, you're a college graduate. He said, why in the hell are you going out to LZ Baldy? And I looked at him and I said, well, is there any place else I can get? Can I hide here for a while? He said, wait a second. He goes in the back. And, uh, and it was very fortunate for me because somebody was about to rotate back to the United States, a soldier, and he was a writer. And so the guy comes back and he says, look, he said, I can see you're a journalist. Can you type? And I looked him right in the face and lied and said, yeah, I'm a great typist. Of course, I'm kind of a type, typist guy. But that guy probably saved my life. Uh, one of many, you know, incidents that happened during that year. But so I get sent up there. And what I did was, what, what I learned to do and what I did, I think, rather effectively over time, was we would be we would get uh, a, a division or a, or a uh, a, a, a platoon or a company who would commander who would send in these suggested suggested awards for for their uh, for their po for the folks in, in their in their units and what they would do is they would kind of write out what what the incident what happened and what the uh, potential awardee did to to merit you know a army commendation medal a bronze star a silver star um, you know whatever. And, and, um, and so what I would have to do would be to take that information and, you know, there was a standard opening and a standard ending, but I would have to describe 
in detail what this, um, this soldier did to earn this award. And once I did that, then I, they, that, that award would be up, sent up the line to the division headquarters, and they would ultimately make the decision on what award that the soldier would get. So that's kind of what I did uh, day in and day out. And then the other thing was, you know, we, we had a large base and a, a, a large perimeter and every, even, you know, even the ocean. We were on the South China Sea on one side and then we were facing the uh, mountains on the other and there was a big plain in between the mountains and, uh, and uh, where we were. And that's where a lot of uh, the action happened. So that's, that's kind of what I did. That's, uh, you know, I just, I, I slept with my M16. Uh, we had, you know, it was kind of dangerous because, you know, you'd have to watch some of your buddies that would, uh, get drunk and want to kill the first sergeant, you know. And they're carrying, everybody's got weapons. We've got pistols. We've got K-bar knives. We've got hand grenades. Uh, so it was, a, it was a crazy time. You know, there's, there's one passage in, in Augie's War, which was the first of these two books. The new one is Augie's World from John uh, Brown. That, that still sticks with me to this day. You're just in the thick of it, uh, you know, in Vietnam and, and you know, bullets are wasn't passed and, and you're, you're essentially running for your life and you get a few days R&R and you're sort of shoved onto a plane, shell-shocked, and, you know, in a few hours you land in Australia and it's yeah. like you're in a whole different world. Yeah. And, and it yeah. was just amazing uh, when Augie and, and his buddy sort of land there and, and then everything is fine and it's like you have a normal life, but then there's the dread knowing that in just a few days you're going to have to go right back into that hell that was Vietnam. And I wonder if that actually happened to you or if, if that's something you just put into the book for a fictional standpoint. No, no, that happened. Um, um, and and what, I, what a lot of us did over there was you could take – the army would give you one week leave. You could take that to any of these kind of R&R locations and one week of R&R. So you could, you could have two weeks off at some point during the year. A lot of people who were married, a lot of guys who were married would meet their wives in, in um, Hawaii or, or someplace like that, which was, you know, was halfway between Vietnam and, and, and the U S kind of. Uh, but, but we saved, my buddy and I saved our time, I got there in, in uh, late, I guess it was uh, early March, and so I had to stay till early March of the next year. So we went on R&R to Sydney in December. So I only had, when I came back, I would only have uh, two and a half months left. But you're right, it, it's, it's surreal. One, one minute I'm, you know, you know, kind of ducking and worrying, and they, I get on a helicopter and uh, they, they fly me down to Cameron Bay, which is a huge base, uh, Army and Air Force base in Vietnam. And then within an overnight, we'd get a chance to clean up. And our, and our, our parents usually would send us some city clothes. And, of course, the, the, the military would give us, you know, because our, our you know, jungle fatigues were falling off of us. So we had clothes, and all of a sudden we're putting on real clothes, uh, stateside clothes. We're on an airplane, it's eight hours, and we're landing in Sydney, Australia. And it's just like, what what happened here? You, you can't, it's just, it's just almost like it's a miracle. But I must say that the thing that impressed me about Sydney, and that's the Opera House had just, just been completed. So it was a beautiful place, and we did take the opportunity to, to get into the, the harbor, and of course, uh, we we drank our weight in uh, beer and, and other things and did a lot of those kind of things. But the thing that impressed me about Australia more than anything else was how wonderful the the residents of Australia that we met were. Um, they really supported us, supported the war, so unlike what we would later experience when we went back to the U.S., where, you know, you hear about people getting spit on, I mean, I've had things thrown at me. I had to, when I got back, I had some time to pull. And I, I worked in downtown Pittsburgh. And I'd, had, I'd park uh, across the river and I'd, cross the, I'd walk across the 10th Street Bridge with my uniform on. I don't know how. I mean, it, it was miserable. Finally, it got to the point so bad that they would allow us to 
wear our civilian clothes until we got into the federal building. This was where this was. And, and, and then we could change into our army clothes. So, you know, backing up, yeah, Australia, the, the, the people were so friendly. Uh, they, they, they appreciated what we were doing. And when you think about it, geographically, they're a heck of a lot closer. They were a heck of a lot closer to Vietnam. And if you believed in the domino theory where the, the, the communists would just go from one place to another, you know, who, who knew how long it would be before they, they'd be in Australia? I mean, I think that was probably the conventional wisdom of the time. But in any event, yeah, I, that was, I, I remember I, if I ever came close to deserting, it was, it was right before I had to get back on that airplane and go back to Vietnam. So, yeah, different. It was a different time. You know, it was just, uh, uh, just, just a totally different time. And so when that, that's how I, when I got back from there, I, and I, I read a lot. So I, I had read Catch-22 a number of times. I loved that book by Joseph Keller uh, about the insanity of war. And I saw it firsthand. Yeah, truth is, is stranger than fiction. A lot of the stuff that I wrote about, some of it's really outlandish and didn't happen, but things like that happen that I write about in Augie's War. And some of the stuff you can't make up. John Brown is our guest today on this special simulcast edition of Zoom into Books and the Big Time Talker podcast. Check him out online at wordsbyjohnbrown.com. And uh, the new book is Augie's World. Unlike a lot of folks that write about their military service, this is something that, that you sort of put in, in the background, in the, in the recesses of your mind, you told me, and you didn't think a, a lot about it for a long time. You went on to a very successful career, serving you know very high levels in state government as a, a commissioner there, you know, ran a very a successful firm. But when it came time for retirement, you went back to look at that world. And in this new book, Augie's World, Augie, the, the, the main character who has a lot of similarities to you, dealt with what today we call PTSD. That really wasn't a thing in the early 70s that you talked about. And, and I wonder when you look back on that, is that what happened to you? Were you, did you come back? I remember back in those days, they would say that guys came back shell-shocked. Were you one of those shell-shocked kids that came back and had to try to- You know what? I, I never thought so. Um, I did have dreams, uh, crazy dreams. I still have about one a year where I'm, I'm an old man now. And for some reason, they're sending me back to Vietnam. And I can't understand why. Uh, but I mean, I, I'm so, so fortunate compared to other people. So, you know, I, I, the, the thing that the worst part of it for me was um, being ashamed that, that I served over there because the way people made me feel. Other, I went to graduate school and I, you know, when they found out I was a Vietnam vet, they, you know, a lot of, a lot of people treated me really poorly. That was, you know, I went to graduate school the, the spring of, 1971, I think it was. Well, it was right before uh, Kent State. And so it, it, it was a fever pitch in terms of anti-war. So it was the wrong place to be for a guy like me uh, in graduate school. I, you know, I, I made it through, uh, got out of there, but it, it was crazy. And, um, you know, I, PTSD, I devote the book to, uh, to people who are, who have been in all, all, any war, anywhere, any country, because, and particularly those who are afflicted by PTSD. And, I, and what I say in the, in, on the cover of the book is that PTSD was not declared a condition until about 10 years after Vietnam, largely because there were so many people coming back from Vietnam, so many soldiers and Marines and, and uh, Naval personnel, Air Force guys who really had these issues. And, you know, they, they finally decided that they're, they're obviously with some kind of psychological uh, malady that associated with this, all of these kinds of, uh, all of these people coming back so messed up psychologically and emotionally. And so they, 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 they finally gave it a name. But when I came back, it was still uh, shell shock or, um, you know, uh, it, Johnny's got a problem or, uh, you know, it, it, it was really all of these kind of derogatory, um, I, I'd even call them pejorative terms for people who served and had issues. And um, I mean, you almost felt like a coward if you had them. 
I didn't think I had them. I had a friend of mine who I sent the, the, my novel to Augie's World before I sent it out because he was a Vietnam vet. And he was out on the boonies and he kind of psychoanalyzed me. He, he was one of those kind of guys. He said, maybe this is, maybe, maybe you're writing this because it's cathartic, because you're, you know, you're expiating de demons, you're getting rid of it. And I never really thought of it that way, but maybe there's an element of that. I certainly was a lot, I, I can't say it loud enough and long enough. I was certainly very fortunate compared to a lot of my comrades who were out on the, out on the jungles, really having, having a lot worse than I did. So, but anyway, you know, what I wanted to do in this book was to talk about how important it is that we pay attention to people that, that have these issues when they come back from wars. And I'm, I'm more concerned than even that I was back then about what's, what's going on now with the Saul Volunteer Army, where we have these young kids going back, you know, not one time or two times, three times and four times, and the psychological toll that it's got to be taken on these people. I don't care where you are. If you're, if you're in a war zone, uh, you don't need to go back multiple times, but maybe, maybe if you're going to be a career military person. So I worry about that. But when I got back um, the first time, again, I, I was in graduate school. I had some free time. I liked to write, and I started writing this novel, Augie's War. I got about two or three chapters into it, got married, had children, put it on the back burner until I retired about three or four years ago. And, and, and I, you know, I'm a wine writer, so I have to sample good wine and occasional food, or maybe a lot of food and, and a lot of wine. And my wife said, kind of half jokingly, you know, you can't start drinking wine at eight o'clock in the morning. So that kind of, <laughs> she said, why don't you write that book you've always wanted to, to, to write? And so that's what happened. That's, I started writing it and uh, was fortunate enough to find uh, someone who wanted to publish it, Black Rose Writing. And when I finished that book, it, it seemed to, people seemed to like it. And uh, I thought, well, you know, it lends itself to, to some kind of a sequel. I didn't want to call it a sequel because I don't think you have to have read Augie's War to understand Augie's world and appreciate what Augie went through when he was in the war. But that's how I, you know, that, that was my thought process uh, in writing the, the Augie's World. Augie back in the world. The world is what we... In, in the service, particularly in Vietnam, would call the United States the world. The rest of the world outside Vietnam. John Brown, our guest today. The new book is Augie's World, the first book, Augie's War. They're both available at wordsbyjohnbrown.com, amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com, wherever great books are sold. Um, I want to talk to you, if we can, a little bit about the craft of writing, because many times other authors or, or folks that, that want to be authors uh, listen to our sure. Talker podcast or they watch Zoom into books. You said you started the first book some 50 years ago, put it away. But in your professional life, you did some writing, you did some advertising writing, some marketing writing. How is, is that writing from a sort of technical sense different than writing a novel? You know what, I think, I think it's all very helpful to, to write, no matter what the, the style is that you're writing, whatever you're, uh, whether it's journalism, it, it's, um, you know, you're an English teacher and you're, and you're trying to do a, write a novel on the side. I think the biggest, and I always laughingly told people, you know, I wrote this, these wine columns from 1980 on, still writing about wine and food is that it was, I was, I was trying to keep sharp in training to write a novel. And that was, that was really more true than not, because I always did want to do it. But there is a distinct difference between writing for journalism and writing uh, uh, literature, whether it's nonfiction. More so, uh, nonfiction is a little more like journalistic writing, but uh, certainly uh, literary fiction is 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 totally different in this respect if i if you know i almost i, I got a c from um uh, professor adkins the flying a and people that's what we call them at, at wvu and that was the hardest c that i ever got in my life and i felt really good getting it because this guy was tough but one of the things they teach you is to write the inverted pyramid style that is uh, you know, you want to put as much information in the first paragraph uh, and, and, and then get all that stuff, the who, what, where, when, and why right away. And then you, you can't, 
they, they really discourage you, even if you're writing an editorial, from using flowery terms or going into great explanations. So the way they teach you to write in journalism is to write uh, uh, very uh, concise uh, uh, report uh, on what happened and get, get, it, get over it. So that's the way I kind of wrote. Even when, even if I'm writing, was writing a press release, you didn't want to go too far afield. So you, you wanted to get it maybe in one, one page or you wanted to, you wanted to make it short enough to, to, to have an impact and you wanted to have the lead be really uh, important. And so you wanted to put an emphasis on that, just the facts, man. So, but then when you start writing, I, I think that, I think I, I've, I've kind of transitioned a little bit, morphed a little bit from the first book to the second in terms of my ability to explain things a little more in detail, but I still feel guilty about doing it. I mean, my books are only, they're 250 uh, pages or less. And, and uh, you know, I'd see all these writers that write 450, 500 word novels. And I'm thinking, man, you know, how do you do that? Or, or why do you do that? And, but I think there's, there's, there's a time and place for everything. My novels, I think that, um, again, I, I think I've grown a little bit in terms of maybe describing things a little bit in, in more in detail, but I still have that journalistic bent is to stick to a storyline and try to make sure that, that I don't go too far afield and lose readers, you know, go off on a tangent and all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're turning pages, just whipping through to get back to, to find out what really happened. So I don't know. I, I think everybody is, is different. Uh, I do. I, I will say that it's not the easiest thing I've ever done to write. Um, and, and the only advice I can give uh, people who want to do that, who want to write, is to sit down and start. And so many times I'm thinking, what am I going to write about? Even in the middle of writing this latest novel, I, man, I don't have any inspiration. What am I going to do here? And somehow, for me, if I sit there long enough and I start writing, it, 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 it becomes more clear. And I find a, a path to get to the next chapter or to the next paragraph even. So I think once you decide that you want to do it, you can't be uh, deterred by what you might call writer's block. You just you almost have to force, I have to force myself to sit down and begin to write because once I do that, inevitably, uh, I'll find something there uh, that I can use. It might just be a paragraph. It might be a sentence. It could be two pages, which is a lot to write in one day, I think. Uh, so I, it, everybody will have to find their own way of doing it. But that's that's kind of the way that, that works for me. The new book is Augie's World. The author is John Brown. The website, wordsbyjohnbrown.com. We've got a, uh, a listener comment that I wanted to pass along to you, John. And uh, sure. she says, I was in college at the time. Mr. Brown is right. The Vietnam vets were loners and seemed to be antisocial. The mood on campus was bad. And then Kent State happened. His service is greatly appreciated. I'm glad he wrote these books. And that leads me to ask you another question. And that is this. Um, they say you write about what you know. In your first book, you touched on your service in Vietnam. The, the new book, Augie's World, you talk about sort of those invisible scars of war that your lead character, Augie Compton, goes through, but also helping his family overcome a threat from organized crime from the mob. Now, that's very stereotypical. You see it in movies. You read it in books all the time. But the organized crime influence in Italian-American families, especially during that time, you think about The Godfather, you think about Goodfellas, was there a mob influence in that town in West Virginia? What can you tell me about the, the reality of writing about what you know and your interaction with the mob back then? Well, I, I can answer it. It's, it, it nothing is a, is a quick and easy answer, but here's the, here's the way I would frame that. Uh, I did a lot of research, and thank goodness I didn't have to go to the library. I mean, I hated to go to the library. I loved to go to the library. For, for what I wanted to go to the library for. That was to look through World War II magazines and things that interested me and find books, which I like to read. But I didn't really want to go there to do academic research. But so, so when the internet really got revved up, 
you can find just about anything. So I did a lot of research on my own hometown, Clarksburg, and what might have prompted this kind of um, divide between the Italian community and also other ethnic communities and the people with names like Brown, you know, who may have run things. And I thought, boy, there's, there seemed to be a lot of prejudice when I was growing up from those, from people with Smith and Brown's last name. You'd hear it. It was kind of an undercurrent. There were actually certain places in, in the town that if you were Italian, you could not uh, buy a home, uh, parts, of, parts of Clarksburg. And this is, I'm in high school and in college, and that's, that's the way it was. You know, it was the same for Jewish people and, and certainly black people and, and immigrant folks. And I could never figure out, I said, boy, it's just really so cruel. What is going on? Well, apparently, like in a lot of, um, a lot of places in the United States, when we had this vast immigration from Italy and other places to the United States going through Ellis Island, you saw this, the, the Godfather and all the things that happened, uh, you know, in the Italian communities where they, they would, you know, these, these immigrants were hardworking people and, and God-fearing people, but they were sometimes uh, the victims of some of this, this, this uh, anti-immigrant sentiment that we see even now. Uh, and so they, these, these, these criminals would offer them protection. And that, that happened not only there, it happened in, in New York City, it happened in Pittsburgh, it happened in all the big cities. Well, Clarksburg, which is about two hours, two hours by road or hour and 45 minutes from Pittsburgh, back in those days, if there was a place to go, a pool room where you could gamble, um, there was always a tie somehow to somebody at another place, particularly if it was an Italian place, um, that to permit them to allow you to bet on a baseball game or whatever. I knew that was going on, but I didn't really kind of know that there was there, there really was a, um, a a direct line and. I, in one of, in some research that I that I did, I found out that in 1924, uh, this group called La Familia Vagabonda, which I refer to in the book, uh, existed in Clarksburg. It actually from 1915 to 1930, and they were as long as they limited their activities to the Italian community, the police didn't care. I, I don't know whether they were paying the police off. I suspect they were left them, left them alone. But if they engaged in any violent activity uh, among themselves or with any, God forbid, anybody with the, the Smith or Brown name, then they would come down on them. And what happened was uh, these La Familia Vagabonda guys, and we'll just call them the mob or the black hand, uh, they, they um, murdered one of their own fellow criminals and the the police came down on them big time the state cops everybody and they ended up hanging six of them in moundsville 1924 i think so i mean there's a there's a history of those kind of organizations and it gives the the the, the vast majority of italian folks and uh, a bad name and of course it's easy everybody will just say well you know if you're italian you must be in the mob which is total Yes, uh, but there there is there is a legacy of of um, of the black hand, uh, the mafia, whatever, in running through the culture of the United States. Uh, maybe not so much now as back then, but it, but even in the seventies, there was a, a little bit made have been a dotted line from Clarksburg to Pittsburgh. But Clarksburg was to the extent had some in control by the mafia or the Black Hand or La Familia Vagabonda, it was Pittsburgh. So a lot of the stuff that I write about, uh, most of the stuff that I write about has some basis in fact. Now, you know, the rest of it, a lot of the stuff I've exaggerated. But, you know, I talk about in Augie's world, not just uh, Jewel Town, which is kind of everybody says, well, that must be Clarksburg. Well, maybe it is. Uh, but I talk about Canaan Valley. I talk about Dolly Sods. I talk about other places that people – if they're from this area or even the region will understand, will always say, oh yeah, okay, I know that. Because I wanted this to have a little bit more of a feel of authenticity. I wasn't trying to, you know, 
hide the, the names, proper names of, of institutions and, and uh, cities and places like that. Tom Brown, our guest today, the new book is Augie's World. And, and yes, there's some interesting historical nuggets in there, but most importantly, John writes page turners. These are books that are fun to read and they suck you in from beginning to end. Uh, part of the, the first book and the second book uh, center around this, this Italian bakery that, uh, that you actually grew up in and around. And, and there's a legendary Italian thing that is available primarily in West Virginia. When I lived out in the West Coast, people had no idea what it was, the pepperoni roll. So what can you tell me about the pepperoni roll from your childhood? Was that, was that a thing back then? Oh, yeah. You know, uh, there, there are these big arguments to this day about who really invented it. Um, there, there's a bakery in, in um, I guess, in Fairmont, Country Club Bakery. Doesn't sound like an Italian bakery, but it is. Who claims that they are the ones that, that invented it? But you know, Health Bread Company, my grandfather's place. They they thought they were the ones that did it. And then Tomorrow's Bakery in Clarksburg. There are like four Italian bakeries in in the region. But yeah, pepperoni rolls. I knew about them firsthand, and I mean that literally because I used to sack those babies. At, you know, at two o'clock in the morning hot hot pepperoni rolls into paper bags and then when i was working at the bakery and then about two or two thirty all these drunks would descend you know to get their couple of pepperoni rolls before they went off to stumble off to bed so i, I ran i mean there were a lot of that's where i come up with a lot of the characters i mean a lot of them are, are true to form i mean these are real kind of real people were composites of real people that that i ran into as a kid growing up there's a lot about the pool room, the Rough Avenue pool room in both places. You know, it's a gathering place. There are some characters, I think, that people will kind of laugh at and, and wonder, are these people real? Like people that own the bars, uh, uh, you know, guys that uh, built mannequins, you know, kind of interesting, I think interesting characters. I mean, I get a kick out of them. <laughs> Somebody said, well, why do you write about stuff like that? And I said, you know what? I write a, a lot about dark things. And there's a lot of pain and agony in some of the things I write. I said, I get depressed reading what I write. So I kind of self, I self uh, analyze my writing. And I said, the reason I do that, and I think it's partially true, is I like to write about things that make me laugh. You know, I've got a weird sense of humor, granted. But so I'll write these lighter things and intersperse them with some of the darker things that happen. Because that's the way life is anyway. I mean, it isn't one, you're not going in one direction, God forbid, all the, all the time. Nobody's going straight up or straight, you know, there's a lot of bumps in the road, but a lot of those bumps are humorous. There are incidents, there, there are people that you met that are pretty unique. And when you think back on it, you say, man, did I really, I know that guy, I mean, did they really do that? And then, of course, you can add a little bit to it. But uh, I think I'm a product of a wonderful family. The, the other thing, and I want to, I do want to say this, is I've dedicated this book to my family too, and to all families really, but the Italian uh, American families in this country are largely alike. I don't care where they're from in Italy. Generally speaking, they're very close knit. They've, they, they've got each other's back. Uh, I mean, uh, there's wonderful food. I mean, my, my family, and I write a lot about food in this book and, um, there's even recipes at the end of it uh, that, that I attribute to the fictional characters that I, you know, people grew up with that my family made, made these things. So I wanted to, to highlight the importance of family and, and how family helps Augie get through these things. And uh, if it wasn't for them, he wouldn't have been able to in both books uh, because they provided the, the crutch for him in Vietnam as he, he could flash back and think about these things when times were bad. And then when he comes back and he's suffering these uh, invisible scars and wounds, uh, he, he calls, uh, he, he has his family to fall back on and, and they've got his back. So, you know, this is important to me to write about the influence, the positive influence and how important family is as it was to talk about the actual story itself. These books both move really, really well, and I think that's a testament to the editing process. So let's talk about your first editor and your biggest critic and, and what kind of feedback you get from that, that individual. 
Well, kind of laugh at my my daily editor was my wife uh, every day, and she she was a school teacher, so she's and she's a very good writer herself. Uh, but she is talking about long suffering. Uh, every day that I write, I, she'd look at it and she would correct it. And I had other friends. I mean, I had on this book, I had three people. They call them beta readers. Read the manuscript from time to time and give me pointers, and it was very very helpful. I even hired a, a, a fellow once I thought that we were in a good good shape to look at it from, uh, not so much from a word by word, do I have a period there, but content. So a lot goes into it. And I, and I can't imagine on my own, even though I think I, I had spell check, uh, I think I know where things, uh, I know a little bit of, a lot about uh, punctuation and all that kind of stuff. I would never, ever attempt to write a book without having a bunch of different people uh, help me edit it. But my wife is my daily editor, so she would, you know, she'd level with me if she didn't like something, or, and she would spot things that I thought that, that were right, but they weren't. So uh, editing is a huge and a pain in the butt, but it's really essential. I mean, not only from the standpoint of, of, uh, of, moving things on and continuity, but also, you know, if you have a lot of mistakes and I'm, I found two or three, many things that once this one was published, it drives me crazy, but it's just, it, it's very unprofessional to see a lot of that. I guess. You talked about long suffering. How long have you and your wife been together? Uh, we just celebrated our 50th anniversary. It's hard to believe. Uh, I don't know how I put up with her. I mean, oh, ah. I don't say that. 50 years. 50 years. It's a long time, isn't it? Uh, you know what? I, I, the time flies, like like for everybody else, and we've been very fortunate. We have uh, uh, two grown sons and three grandchildren with, that we love dearly. Um, and and this, in this crazy time we're in now, we can't, you know, can't see them as much as we'd like. Uh, but uh, but it's a good time to read, though, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of a good time to open up a book. And uh, I certainly have. I mean, I've always got two or three things going, uh, you know, that, that I'm reading. Uh, just finished a book called um, Enemy at the Gates. Some of you may know about it. Uh, it was actually a Pulitzer Prize winner in 1968 uh, book, a Pulitzer Prize winning book. And it was about the Battle of Stalingrad, which is an incredible book. Then I read kind of trashy things like, uh, not trashy, but I love Elmore Leonard. He's gone now, but I've read everything that he's written. Uh, you know, crime stuff. Uh, Robert Cray, C-R-A-I-S, if you get a chance and you like crime stuff, he, I love him. Uh, and I read everything that he, he has. Um, so, you know, I always have two or three things going. And uh, it keeps me stimulated. I see how well these people write and kind of encourages me to try to improve what I do, but I just, I just love, I've always loved to read. You've given us some really good tips on the writing process when it comes to editing and, and reading other authors. And as we begin to wrap up, I want to ask you about the new book and, and, and I guess both books, what is it you're most proud of in Augie's world and, and Augie's war? I, I mean, I think you've got to be proud just that you, you finished that first book after all that time, but what are you most proud of in those two books? Um, you know what? I honestly can't. I think I think the fact that, um, and, and maybe I'm just listening to the wrong people, but both books have, so far, the, the first book was well received. And it makes me feel like, you know, well then maybe I accomplished something because I wanted to, um, I wanted to make, uh, I wanted to make a novel that, you know was something that people would not forget. So I don't know as far, I, I think the fact that I finished them, that was writing the first one. Everybody said, well, how'd you write that book? And, and so I felt good about that. But when the, but when the reaction to the book was positive, uh, that was probably the, the, the biggest uh, uh, feeling of, of, of having done something right. I mean, still, I, I go back and look at it and I wish I would have done this or different or that different. And the same thing with Foggy's World. I'm, I'm less 
I'm still on pins and needles, although the book has gotten two really good reviews, one from Kirkus uh, Reviews, which is a pretty prestigious national reviewing um, group. So I feel pretty good about that, but I'm still waiting to see what friends and family and other folks have to say about this book. It's, it's only been out uh, in less than a month. The book is Augie's World. That's the new one from John H. Brown. It's the follow-up to Augie's War, and you can find them both at uh, wordsbyjohnbrown.com and Amazon, Barnes Noble, wherever books are sold. Congratulations on the new book. Was the second one easier than the first one? Had you figured it all out by the time you got around to writing number two? I, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think it was actually more difficult to get started. It took me 10 months to start the second book. Uh, after the first one was published and I just didn't know what I was going to write it, what I should write it. But there was so much more to write about Augie and who knows, I keep getting asked if I'm going to write Augie three. And, and I didn't want to do that, but the more I think about it, I'm kind of miss the character and I miss it. So I may be, I'm, I'm kind of leaning toward trying to do that. Although I, I really want to branch out and do something else, but this is, I think there's still more of a story to tell and I don't want to give too much away, but you've read it. So there's, I think there's room to do something else. I'm hoping I'll be able to get the inspiration to start. Well, we hope so too. We love the character. We love the books. And you can always get uh, periodic updates on John's writing as a uh, food and wine critic for the Charleston Gazette newspaper. Those columns are online. He's been doing that now for decades as well. John Brown, thanks for the conversation. Thanks for being here. Best of luck with Augie's hey, World. Bert. Really appreciate you doing this, and, and, uh, and we'll see where it goes. But uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. It's our pleasure. Thanks as well to Kathy Teets and the gang at Headline Books and Zoom into Books for the Blog Talk Radio Network and our Big Time Talker podcast, sponsored by Speaker Match. I'm Burke Allen. Thank you so much for being here. Now go out and make it a great day.